Want to learn what sets LiveFlow apart from thousands of other QuickBooks Online apps? Do you want to learn how LiveFlow saves time for hundreds of accountants and bookkeepers? Want to learn how LiveFlow helps accountants and bookkeepers to use LiveFlow successfully in their firm? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. FTX, according to Morningstar, which is one of the ESG rating agencies, FTX had a higher governance score in their ESG report than did ExxonMobil. And from what I understand, FTX didn't have a board of directors, but somehow their ESG score is higher than ExxonMobil's. Now, if somebody, if, if an ESG proponent out there can explain that to me, then I'm all ears. Otherwise, this is all BS. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And we are joined today by Ron Baker. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks, you guys. I'm honored to be here. I think it's my first appearance on the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Is it really? Yeah, it's hard I to think believe. I've been on, I've been on your mark, but I don't okay. think I've been here. So, thrilled. well, I can't believe it took us 311 episodes to get there. Uh, <laughs> it's well past due. You, Ron, are, uh, barely need an introduction, but just in case our listeners are new to you and your work, they should know that you started your career with KPMG's private business advisory services in San Francisco. You are the founder of the Verisage Institute, the leading think tank dedicated to educating professionals internationally. You have your own podcast and talk radio show on uh, voiceamerica.com, The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy. And you are a prolific writer of books, the latest of which is Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, which is my favorite yet. I was very honored that you asked me to write the foreword to this book. Thank you. No, I was honored you wrote it. It totally fit with my experience. Started my own firm, worked for a big firm, and I got so frustrated working inside of a large firm, filling out timesheets, when I felt like it just didn't make sense when I was trying to convert all these clients to monthly fixed fee subscriptions. Like the whole thing was just uh, painful. And, and the way that you've laid it out in this book, I feel like will convince, it should convince anyone that subscriptions are the way to go and it's the future. So, Well, Blake, I can't believe we're still in the year of our Lord 2022 having this debate about timesheets. I mean, I'm over it. That's <laughs> kind of why the book is called Time's Up. It's like, this is it. If this doesn't blow uh, up the timesheet, nothing will. I love that. Well, the subscription economy, understanding that better could be the, the key to it. Yeah. David, hey, how are you doing, by the way? Good, good. I was gonna, I'm going to ask Ron before we talk about his book and get in the news. Yeah. So Ron has thousands of books sitting there in his office. And I suspect, Ron, Ron you, you read. This is a, a I do. read a lot. How do you read? Like, do you dog tag all the books? Are you writing down notes inside the books, constant post notes, or do you just read it and then move on from there? Like, From 2009 or something, it's all Kindle. I haven't been in a bookstore and I rarely buy uh, hardcover, softcover books unless they're not on Kindle than I might if I really want to read it. But that'll prevent me. That's a hurdle for me. I I like to read digitally now. And then hi, just highlight and then capture the highlights. You Oh, you, you do the highlights right in the... Right in the Kindle. The Kindle. Okay. I yeah. like that about Kindle is you highlight yes. and then you can export all your highlights later. That's, yep. that's great. It is great. It makes researching and, you know, collating some of your ideas much easier whether you dump it into Evernote or some other format, it's really helpful. How long have you been working on this book, Time's Up, Ron? Um, well, it's been four years in research, and then it was really written this year from, uh, well, starting in December of last year, and then through, it was due, I think May 11th was the sword of Damocles hanging over my head when the thing was due, because what the printer told me, or what the publisher told us was, you guys, if you don't submit this manuscript on time, it's not going to get into the printer's queue, and there's a paper shortage, and apparently there still is one. A paper shortage. A paper shortage in the United States of America, which I can't understand. So it's really an interesting time period. I just got tweeted this morning that um, you can subscribe to an apartment. So rather than renting, you subscribe, and people say, well, what's the difference? Well, right. it goes month to month. You can probably get out anytime you want, and there's probably something plused about it that... 
That's the thing that most people don't understand about this model is you cannot go to the market with a common offering with subscription. It's got to be uncommon. If you go to the market with the same old thing that every other, every other firm is talking about, oh, we do CAS, we do advisory, we do this, we do, it's a common offering. You're going to have common pricing power. But if you go to the market with an uncommon offering, that's where you get pricing power. Well, you have been talking for a long time about concierge medicine. I think that's one of your examples that you give in your talks about subscription pricing and fixed fee pricing and value pricing. And that just became real for me in my own experience. My parents Mm. are getting up there. They're in their 70s now. And they got tired of having to wait for appointments to meet with their primary care doctor now that it's getting more frequent. And they just subscribe to a concierge medicine practice for $6,000 a year. They get the phone number of a doctor who they can see the next day and whose office will handle all of the logistics of booking any specialist, any appointment. It's truly concierge. I have a problem. I call and it's taken care of. And you, you've really uh, called that as like the future of, of medicine. And I see it happening here in Arizona. The first concierge medicine was MD squared, started by a guy named Howard Moran, who was the Seattle Sonics uh, basketball team doctor. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, I know everything about these guys. They get injured on the court. I can run out there and get them back in the game instantaneously because I know their medical history. I know what they're allergic to. I know everything about them. Why can't I do this in my practice? He was a general physician. He says, well, because I have 2,400 patients. I get to spend five, seven minutes with them half that time is, you know, typing into the electronic health records. He got frustrated with this and said, no, no, we're going to start MD squared. At the time, it was $24,000 a year. So you're going after the top 10, 15% of the income earners in the country, you know, people with more money than time, CEOs and things like that. And he limited each doctor to 50 families. That was it. He said, you can't do more than that because we have to be available when they need us on demand, which means we have to have tons of excess capacity. There's no waiting room in these doctor's offices. You come in, they shut the door and lock it behind you. And the average appointment with a DPC doc, a direct primary care doc or a concierge doc is usually over an hour. Wow. Because they're not interested in just helping you when you present with a problem. Yeah, that's great. They'll present, you know, you present with some rash or some sickness or, okay, yes, they'll try and get you, they'll get you better. They want to keep you healthy. You're making an investment in your health, health, wealth, and wisdom. Those are the three things that some total a human and two of them are incredibly important to invest in. And doctors take care of our health. CPAs take care of our wealth. Yeah. And wealthy people will invest in that and they'll invest big in that. Yep. Yep. So if you as an accountant, uh, an accounting firm owner, want to have a practice that isn't stressing you out and isn't making you work a zillion hours, this is a, a real model to look at. Uh, how, do we, how do we have fewer clients? How do we charge more money to deliver better services to have a more, a more personal experience or a more, I don't know, hands-on experience with the clients? A more, a, a more dramatic impact on, the, on yeah. the customers we're privileged to serve, which you know, I've been obsessed since I've been researching this book, asking professionals, why'd you enter your profession? been asking doctors, lawyers, consultants, why'd you enter the profession? I never hear to bill the most hours. I never hear to do the most tax returns during busy season and not see my kids. I never hear to have the most customers. I hear to help people. You can't help people if you got a thousand customers. Mm-hmm. Relationships don't scale. And I know people, people freak when I say that. I'm not saying that businesses based on relationships can't scale. I'm saying relationships one-to-one don't scale. Yeah. There's that Dunbar number, you know, 7,500 people. That's about all we can handle. And if you do that, then you can have a dramatic impact on their lives, not just give them services. It's, it's but, interesting because I was just talking the other day um, on the Earmark podcast that I do that you've been on, Ron, with a firm owner up in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, the firm's called Mizuma. And it's all subscription-based. There's only two tiers of pricing. Get this, uh, 100 and, I think it's $120 a month and $180 a month. They have 6,000 clients paying that monthly fee, one or the other, and they do their monthly write-up work, they do, and they do a tax return. 
and uh, depending on the pricing plan, it includes a personal uh, and a corporate return or maybe just the corporate return. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, like most firms, the way they're set up could never deliver that and make any any money at scale, but they've done it with subscription-based pricing. So I wanted to ask you, um, I guess another question about subscriptions, which is like, why does why does subscription pricing beat the model we've been using for a hundred years? Because it's based on recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue, rather than reoccurring revenue. Reoccurring revenue is, yeah, we kind of know it'll be there, but it's kind of like a rash. We never know if it's really going to come back, or it, it's just not as predictable. Whereas when a venture capitalist or private equity firm or even a buyer of a firm analyzes your firm, it's going to take your revenue. It's going to dump it into two buckets, recurring and reoccurring. Reoccurring will probably be worth one-time gross. Reoccurring could be worth five, ten times more because it's predictable, because you have a track record with churn. So a firm that's based on recurring revenue is going to be more valuable when the owner exits Plus, I, th- I just think it gives you more control over scaling, you know, because it throws off that predictable revenue. You can capitalize on that. You can you can use that as collateral to go get financing. I just think you have more options. Plus, it, it just forces you to take care of every customer and try and keep them for life because it's not looking at the math of the moment, right? We get mm-hmm. so caught up in the math of the moment. Oh, gee, the scope changed. Let's go to the department of paperwork and get a change request and but. The customer doesn't care because the services are a means to an end. Right. The end are transformations. And we're all focused on the the means and the services and the scope of work. And that the customer could care less about the scope of work. Just yep. do it. And if you have the right business model, like this guy in Utah sounds like he does, I'm not saying that every practice has to be concierge. There, there's This is a big marketplace. There's lots of room for different price points. You know, I, I like the Ritz Carlton, the Four Seasons type practice, but this guy, he's running a Hilton Garden Inn. Yep. And it sounds like he's killing it. And that's very possible because he's using a penetration pricing strategy and he's got his, he stays in his lane. He probably knows his ideal customer exactly what he's going to do for them. He's defined by the services and the customers he doesn't have, as all firms are. Yep. And you got to stay in your lane. And too many CPAs out there are trying to be Morton's, McDonald's, a vegan restaurant, a Japanese restaurant, because they don't want to turn anybody away. Well, if you're all of those things, I guarantee you all your food's crap. That's what I love about the subscription economy and the way you've described it in the book is that you can apply this to any type of firm serving any type of client. And actually, the more specific you are about who you serve and what you do for them, the better this works. And so... Uh, yeah, Mazuma is doing that super scoped down, very basic, just what you need type of service to get your taxes done, which is what his clients want, which are between you know a hundred and you know five hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue. These these basically uh, micro businesses, right? Um, and that's yep. all they want. That's all they need. But then you can also build a concierge practice where you're working with high net worth individuals or people with multi million dollar businesses or, or you know. They just sold, you know, maybe, maybe you just specialize in helping people who just sold a business and helping them figure out what to do next. It all works. And it's all just about figuring out like what those people need and what's the price and how can you deliver all those services to them? And you're not, right. we're not trying to do everything. Right. It, <laughs> it's know? all, you know, people jump, want to jump right into the pricing, whether you're talking about moving from hourly to value pricing, or you're talking about moving from one of those to subscription and 99.9% of those questions are not pricing issues at all. They're strategy issues. Mm-hmm. My first question is, why do you have that customer? Here you are with a sweet spot of two to five million in gross revenue for most of your businesses, and yet you have a handful of companies that have $100 million in revenue. Pick one or the other. Stop trying to be all things to all people. You're, you're, you, you can't please everybody. You're not tequila. <laughs> Well, and maybe that is how the auditors of crypto exchanges got into trouble. We just saw news today. Armanino has finally responded defending its work with FTX. Armanino was the auditor of the U.S. uh, FTX entity. Interestingly, in the article, they mentioned that this crypto practice they had only had nine people in it. And 
only represented 1% of the firm's revenue. So I wonder, I wonder if, if like the reason that Armanino and Mazers uh, and what was the other one, Prager Metis have gotten in trouble with this is because they were getting into something that they really didn't understand. And I think that stat, like you, you just really lays into the article we talked about last week and why that they didn't want the exposure, like the, the negative publicity. It's just not, it doesn't produce enough revenue. There's enough, it's not a big enough chunk of the firm. Like why, just get out of it. That's what they all bailed out of it because it's it. not worth it. It's not worth yeah. the risk for nine employees. Just not. Yeah. yeah. I, and you know, the, on that, it, it, we have a principle, the AICPA, it's one of the six foundational principles of being a CPA and that is do care. If you've never done it before, if you don't know what you're doing, you're prescribed from doing it. You, you shouldn't, you, you got to turn it over to a member who's who's done it before to at least guide you, teach you, or review your work. I think we violate due care all the time because we're just not willing to say no. We just think we can do anything. And I tell you, it'd be like walking, you know, being wheeled into the OR and having your doctor over you going, wow, look at that. I've never seen that before. No, give me the guy who's done it 10,000 times. Don't give me no. an amateur or somebody who dabbles on it in it on the weekend. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. One thing we haven't talked about yet is how LiveFlow helps accountants and bookkeepers to use LiveFlow successfully in their firms. For starters, LiveFlow has amazing customer support. They offer instant help 24-7 from real humans via chat, or if you prefer, you can schedule a Zoom meeting, choose to call them, or even email the founders directly. LiveFlow has a library of plug-and-play templates such as consolidated PL and flash reports to enable and scale across your clients in a snap. They also have dozens of blog posts from other LiveFlow users where they share their best practices and they even share their Google Sheets so you can just copy them and start using their best practices in your firm instantly. In my opinion, this is what really sets LiveFlow apart from thousands of other QuickBooks Online apps, this ability to build, share, and scale on each other's work. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. So thank you everyone who has joined us on our YouTube Live. We stream... Uh, not every episode, but most episodes on Friday mornings on YouTube. Please find our channel. We're Cloud Accounting Podcast and subscribe so you get notified. And if you have questions for Ron, you can put those in the chat. Ron, we got a question from Christopher. He said, do we accountants shoot ourselves by inadvertently putting value on the relationships we have with our clients? Do we as accountants shoot ourselves by inadvertently putting value on the relationships we have with our clients? I'm not no, sure what to make I of that. Yeah, no, so it's it's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I think I know what he's saying. Because we, we because we want to be so pleasing, because we have good relationships, we have a hard time saying no. We have a hard time even pricing those engagements. You know, we all suck at pricing ourselves. But if I'm pricing you, Blake, I can be brave mm -hmm. as a lion. This is why actors and authors have agents. It's not because they like to give these people 15% of their gross. It's because they can get them a better price when they negotiate deals. And we we suck at pricing ourselves so i think that's kind of where he's going with that but i think the bigger problem is we are monetizing the services and i want to monetize the relationship itself tell me more what you mean by that going from monetizing the services to monetizing the relationship and 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 i don't i don't mean to be involved in a financial transaction with your customers i you know that, that sounds i know that sounds odd but what i'm saying is we need to stop monetizing services and scope of work. We're so much greater than the sum of our scope of work. Just to, to invest in that relationship right. and to keep your eye on customer lifetime value because that's the end game here. Subscription businesses are creating lifetime annuities that are more valuable, far more valuable, sometimes between three and eight times more valuable than the cost to acquire them. Yeah. And that's what we need to track, but we're not tracking that. We don't track churn. We don't track customer life or model, I should say, customer lifetime value because we're just, we're on that fee for service treadmill, just like the yeah. doctors are. We're not doing things for our customers. We're doing things to them because that's how we get paid. The only way I can get paid is if I sell my hands. And I think that sells ourselves way short. 
Well, maybe that's part of how these crypto audits got in trouble because what was Armanino selling? What was Mazer selling? What was PragerMeta selling? There were a couple, it sounds like really only two actual audits that happened of FTX. In 2021, there was some sort of actual, what we would call an audit. A gap audit. A gap audit. But mostly that's not been what these firms have been doing, it turns out. And this is where the massive confusion in the market exists. These firms have been doing proof of reserves reports, right. which are in the accounting lingo known as, um, uh, well, they, I've heard them described as attestation reports in the news, which I never learned that. I don't remember right. learning that term in my audit. I think it's kind classes. of a new thing. Yeah, yeah. kind of like an opinion letter or something. Yeah. But then when you dig into these proof of reserves reports, so-called, which I don't think is actual auditing lingo either, that's made up as well, that's new, what you find is that these are just uh, agreed upon procedures engagements, which is a type of engagement where it's not an audit. Let's be very clear. It's not a gap audit. There's no, uh, not, not necessarily any review of internal controls. There's no assurance provided other than that certain procedures happened. And so I think that's that's what we're, we fundamentally have this issue with this 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 confusion is that Mazers, Armanino, Pregramedis are doing proof of reserves reports, which are supposed to validate that certain assets existed at a certain point in time and were controlled by the entity that says they control them, right? But we don't know what they did and there's no, uh, there's no comparison to liabilities. So really the reports don't mean anything, right? They, they provide, and they say that in the documents that they provide no assurance. So here we have audit firms providing reports to the client who's then giving them to the public. Public thinks that these reports provide assurance. They think that they're audits. And in many cases, the clients were actually saying, we got an audit when all they got was an attestation report. But the public doesn't know the difference. This is the difference of the focusing on the services you're providing versus the relationship, right? And the COO of Armenino flat out has said now, this is in today's article, the firm's auditors weren't tapped into looking at internal controls at FTX. And then auditing the internal workings of a company is not a requisite for private corporations. So, so they have their out, right? They're focusing on the service they provided or did not provide. But the crypto companies, and I keep talking about this, they keep exploiting the relationships. As soon as they're like, okay, hey, now I have the name. I'm going to put that everywhere and people don't know the difference. And so the crypto companies are exploiting the relationship and the accounting firms don't even know. They're just trying to provide, they're too focused on the service they're providing. And they're missing the whole point that you're being exploited by all That's these crypto people. That's a really good people. point. Yeah. Yeah. The crypto firms engage with these firms. The crypto exchanges engage with the firms, get the attestation report, pretend the attestation report is an audit. And- this is where I think we ran into ethical problems as a profession is nobody stood up and said when they started holding this out as audits, by the way, these don't provide assurance. Like the firms didn't do it. AICPA didn't do it. Nobody yeah, that, did it. That didn't happen. I mean, da David, you and I were looking on Tether's website back in like January after the collapse of, was it Luna? And we were looking at these attestation reports like that that were provided by, I don't know who, who did it at the time, F there's a Cayman Islands firm and now it's like BDO Italia. Like these reports are meaningless. But every time you go on Twitter and you say Tether is not backed one-to-one, -one, people will come out and say, oh, but they have this proof of reserves report. But we all know the proof of reserves report is just a snapshot at a point in time. And we don't know what procedures were actually done to val validate that these you know, reserves exist. I mean, all you need to get is one partner in a small team in a big firm with a good logo to sign off on it. And we know Italians never take bribes, right? That's not a thing they do. <laughs> you, you know, guys, I think this brings up a much bigger issue. Not only are these proof of reserve reports completely useless, but so is the audit. The audit's completely irrelevant and there's no right way to do the wrong thing. And I just, you know, the audits have become, I think accounting has become a deteriorating paradigm as we make it more and more complex with the, all these dumb FASB rules that keep coming out. It, it, it's what philosophers call a deteriorating paradigm. It gets more complicated as it explains less and less. And that's where we are. And the audit itself is useless. So certainly these letters of attestation are, are no better and far worse probably. 
Let's dig into that more, Ron. Uh, uh, David, I know you have a follow-up question. Like, I want to talk about this problem with audits because I feel like this is this is like fundamental to the future of our profession, and it doesn't get. Before talked you talk about, about the problems, can we just talk about the news that came out this week and the numbers of the problem with audits? Yeah. PCAOB. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, let's <laughs> so, talk about yeah, PCAOB uh, so, inspection. PCAOB uh, has their over. They 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 released this report, right? And a little, and basically one third of all the audits failed. And they keep re- referencing. Wait, this wait, thing so, sorry, wait, David. You have to. You just. You got to say that like three times. How many? How many? One third of these audits have failed. And when I say failed, the the firm and the audits appear. So they keep referencing this part one A of the report. I'm like, what is this? So I Google it. So part one A of the individual audit firm's inspection report discusses deficiencies, if any, that were of such significance that the PCAOB staff believes the audit firm. At the time it issued the audit reports, had not obtained sufficient appropriate audit evidence to support its opinion on the public company's financials. Okay, so okay. One Hold third, on. one third of the time, they have to put them in the exception box. Let's turn that into normal speak, plain English. Okay. So what that means to me, I'm a CPA, right? But I never did audit. But I'm just trying to interpret this. And Ron, maybe yes. you can interpret it for us and tell me if I'm right or wrong. It sounds like what they're saying is that the PCAOB. Uh, how many audits did they inspect? It was like a hundred and they under, they inspected one hundred and forty one firms. Oh, uh, six hundred ninety audits were reviewed. Okay, so yep. six hundred ninety audits reviewed. A third of those audits that they looked at, they said the firm didn't do a good enough job to actually support their opinion on the financial statements being accurate and without material misstatement. Right, all the stuff that you. Yep. Right. So, so if I if I'm using that those financial statements from that company, I can't rely on them. Is what the PCAOB is saying. A third of financial statements can't be relied on. That's what that means to me. Like, why is that not bigger news? It, it should be. This this is this is my rail against the monopoly of the audit. It's the only thing that CPAs have a monopoly on, right? And anything else we do as CPAs, there's plenty of competition from non-CPAs, consulting firms wealth planners, blah, 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 tax accountants, EAs, blah, blah, blah. So we have a monopoly here with a one-third defect rate. Sounds to me like the public schools. You know, half of the students they churn out can't read at grade level and don't know science and history and things like that. Why do we keep supporting this monopoly? If this was any other business, we wouldn't tolerate. We didn't like AT&T. We don't like our local utility company. But when it comes to this, we all want a monopoly because, oh, it's there to protect the public. It's doing no such thing. Yeah. This this whole independence idea is a complete joke. We're not independent. You can't be paid to be independent. The stock market should be hiring and paying the auditors for the companies that are listed on their exchanges. And at least that would be more independence than we have now. But I still think the product itself is defective. Yeah. And yeah, proof I mean, of this, it's, it, it, and it's not just like a small defect. It's a third of audits are totally defective. That's what that, and, and only five percent of investors use even look at them to make it. I mean, Brooke Lev has proved this point over and over and over. Even if he he came out with a report, you might have seen it in accounting today. Even if you could predict earnings per share for every company, I saw that. Yeah, you, you still wouldn't make any money. <laughs> So, because it just doesn't matter. It, the market's not looking at the accounting data. You know that. I mean, auditors come in after the war and they bayonet the wounded. It's crazy that we're that we force companies to pay all this money to comply with something that nobody looks at. But the ripple effects are true. It just came out this week. The whole nobody looking at the Trump tax returns, and the reason why is the IRS agent basically says, "Well, he hires a professional accounting firm at the time that was Mazars, right?" And the assumption is they do their job properly and properly make sure all the income and deductions are reported properly. So we probably don't need to spend time auditing it. And that's that's the point of view. So the whole entire IRS, when it comes to auditing, they assume these big firms are doing their job correctly. And it's very clear they're not one third of the time. Yeah, well, 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 and right I think it was like to, there was one agent, one agent was assigned to audit Trump, Trump. with 400 LLCs. Can you, can you imagine that, like, you get that assignment, you're, like, coming into work, hey, uh, hey, Bob, you've been with us for a few years now. We've got an assignment for you. Enjoy. Here's the files. You know, like, boxes coming in. Like, he had no choice. No chance, right? No chance. 
This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. Think about this. If you have approximately 60 clients and create five reports a month for each of them, that's over 3,500 reports a year. And let's say you're really fast and it only takes you one minute per report. That's almost 2.5 days a year you spend creating reports. Here are a few of the ways LiveFlow saves time for so many accountants and bookkeepers. Once you create the perfect suite of reports for a client, you can just copy the Google Sheet, use LiveFlow to connect it to a different client's QuickBooks Online company, and you're all done. The new reports will pull in the data for the second client automatically. You can easily drill down on the details of each number on a LiveFlow report, including drilling down to the transaction level to navigate directly to the transaction inside of QuickBooks Online. No more opening QuickBooks Online to search for specific transactions. LiveFlow and Google Sheets are in the cloud, so you don't have to waste time emailing files between your team and your clients. And you can give your clients access to a suite of reports that they can access anytime, eliminating one-off requests for you and your staff. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Stop manually updating your spreadsheets with LiveFlow. And it comes back to faith in the, the industry, right? In this, So there's a forensic accountant in this article talking about the Trump's returns. And he goes on to talk about how at some level you have to be like, okay, look, the returns are all computerized. They're done properly. I've got some level of faith that somebody in their quality control process, as in that somebody being the firms, right, are doing this properly. And this is the same assumption we have as the public. Like, oh, FTX had Armanino. We have trust them now. Like the, there's so much trust that we're giving all these big accounting firms, and do they deserve it? I don't even know if it's deserve it, but like I think in general the public is very naive to the fact that one third of these firms, it goes like I talk about ninety nine, even ninety nine percent is not great. Go go buy ninety nine point nine percent dust free cat litter. It's not good enough. Right? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. If FedEx had that defect rate, we yeah. we'd go nuts. Yeah. Or UPS. But yeah. one third? One third? It's crazy. One, one third of, yeah, the entire audit has to be, cannot be substantiated. The opinion that the, I mean, like, like, what does that mean? That means, think about it, that like there are Fortune 500 companies and like a third of them, the financial statements might be totally wrong, right? It's possible that they're no, wrong. Well, yeah. well, we know they are wrong. I mean, we know that already. It's just that what what's the magnitude of the error? I mean, this right. is something economists have been saying for decades. You know, we, when we issue reports, we put out the magnitude of error, which in our lingo would mean we would report the materiality and say this could be within 10,000, 100,000 either way, you know? Yeah. At least, we, at least the public would know that, right. no, this isn't buttoned down. Yeah, why are audit opinions yes or no? Yes. Right? I why is it pass agreed. or uh, fail? It should be a movie review. Audit opinion should read like a movie review. You know, this looks good, we, we, but we're really uncertain about this and this, you know, yeah. or like an autopsy report, you know. It should go through and it should give the auditors, you know, subjective opinion. But they don't want that because that opens them up to liability and being sued if things are more subjective. Well, and when you're getting paid by the client, it creates a lot of awkward You might lose your consulting situations, right? That too. Because you can't, you're not, you're not really yep. independent. You're not independent. It's not independence. I, I, I've had this conversation with the AICP, and I just can't believe it. But they say, but the board of directors, the audit committee hires the auditor. I don't care. Are they spending their own money on the auditor? It, it's who's paying them that matters. Mm -hmm. Just the appearance of that is bad enough to blow it up by our own standards. You have to be you have to be independent in fact and appearance. Yep. This doesn't pass that test at all. And we didn't even get to part 1B of the individual firm inspection reports by the PCAOB. Uh, let's see. Those deficiencies, I guess, are less bad. I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really less sure. Less bad. I love it. Less bad. I, like there's, there's yeah. the really bad and the less bad. Uh, so apparently 40% of the audits that they reviewed had a deficiency of part 1B. So it's more than part, part 1A, which is the more serious one. That's like a third, right? 33%. Then it's 40% for part 1B. And if you add up all the part 1A and part 1B deficiencies, all the different types of deficiencies, over half of audits uh, had problems. Deficiencies. 55% uh, of engagements. 
that they reviewed. Did they report the size of the firms that they analyzed? Was it like in the top 100, top 10, top 20? They gave I out. Think it, well, they, they inspect, theoretically, they inspect a random sampling of all audit firms, don't they? It's they, not done by size. Be, or my, be my guess, but I, I don't um, know. But a lot of, I've know. always assumed. The report feels like a lot of top 10. It's like EY, 12 of the 56, PwC. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, they would a, be the predominant. Six, even in 18 a, of 16. Um, yeah. Deloitte mm. was the number for them. Uh, seven so, of the 54. So, yeah, so they're going through BDO USA. They're going through all the top, top. So here's, I, I mean, you, you yeah. the funny thing about the auditing topic is only 15%, maybe less now, of CPAs are deployed in auditing, you know, financial statements. And so most of this is just absolutely irrelevant to small firms. Right. Absolutely irrelevant. But it it pulls down the brand. Like the, does. the CPA brand has a lot of value. And I feel like when these meaningless audits confuse the situation and we have failures like FTX and, you know, Enron, of course, is the classic from my generation growing up, right? Sure. There's one every decade. And, yeah. You can go back every decade and find a, a massive yeah. audit failure. Yeah. And Penn I think- Central. I mean, it goes all the way back. It it it, dest- it destroys the public trust, or at least it, it has an impact on it, maybe. But, but it doesn't matter because it's a monopoly. Right. Companies have to have it and they have to hire a CPA. They have to hire one of these big fours to do it. Right. And, well, and that's the problem. And this maybe this is why, like in crypto, people weren't clamoring for audits because they actually know that they don't mean anything. Well, like, the venture capitalists that invested certainly weren't clamoring for it. Yeah. And these are sophisticated investors. That's about as sophisticated as you get. Yeah. But they were sold on this SBF guy, like he was mm-hmm. some type of wonderkin. Well, so I like to think of this problem as not just being limited to you know, the big four are the audit firms. You said, what percentage of the profession is 15% doing 15% or less. That's it, really? That's it. Well, Swear to God, but it that's has an, it. It has an outsized impact on the future of our profession. It has right? an outsized impact on everything. All the regulations. You know, we teach ethics in California. We have to do a regulatory review update. 90% of the California State Board of Accountancy regulations deal with attest services or are drafted because of attest services. Yeah. They have nothing to do with much else. So... One of the problems we have in our profession, probably the biggest one, is that we aren't producing enough accountants. We aren't producing enough CPAs. People are not wanting to come into the profession to go be auditors and do entry-level tax, right? That's where you get started. I don't know if it's still the case, but I feel like, judging from what I see, most of the new jobs, the entry-level jobs that you get out of school are at big firms. Larger firms are willing to train. They have the capacity to do this, right? You come in, and that's the the traditional path. You go work for KPMG, like you did, Ron, right? And you get... you, you. Wait, cut your teeth on it, and then you go and do something else, or maybe you keep going. But maybe the reason that you know accountants don't want to go work is the the pay is low. That's another thing that you know people talk about is like the the pay for auditors is really really low. the The work is not very, it's not meaningful, and so maybe the problem is that like like the work's not meaningful because we all actually fundamentally know deep down that the audits don't mean anything. And maybe the pay is low because the public also knows this. So they're not willing to pay for audits because the audits aren't giving them useful information. Like you said, you, like the Baruch Lev did that story that um, you know only a small, tiny percentage of investor decisions are made with audited financial statements. Right. Just look at the downloads on Edgar. <laughs> a few There's dozen, There's something right? like 30, you know. <laughs> It's so absolutely that, amazing. So that's the website where you can go and download audited financial statements, publicly issued financial statements. And yeah, only- There's tumbleweeds. Most, most financial statements are only, are only downloaded a few dozen times at best. Like, yeah, you so guys are you have just more saying live like listeners. this is a cycle of apathy? <laughs> Blake, is this what you're saying? So I have a job in audit. I know nobody's going to read these numbers. Nobody really cares. So I'm just going to half-ass the job. And then nobody cares about the audit because they know you have to ask the numbers and they don't mean anything. And it's just like this, we're trapped in this cycle of apathy where yeah, we're just doing it because there's a law that says it has to be done and that's it. And there's money to be made to do it, right? It's a lot of money. Yeah. Apparently. A lot so, of money. And, and, and only the big firms can do the big companies. I mean, there's no yeah. way a top 20, 50 firm could audit General Motors or Toyota or or something like that. I mean, that's why the big four just, they have that secure base because it's its a compulsion. People have to do it. 
This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zoho. I'm sure you've heard of Zoho before. We've probably even mentioned Zoho CRM or Zoho Books on this podcast in the past. But do you really know about Zoho? Did you know that Zoho offers an entire suite of solutions to run your firm, including a CRM, expense tracking, bookkeeping, a full office suite, a support ticket system, and workflow automation? Did you know that Zoho offers a suite of solutions for your clients' bookkeeping, including bookkeeping, inventory, invoicing, subscription management, and a checkout app? Did you know that Zoho has an accountants program? Did you know that Zoho advisors get free access to eight Zoho applications and a dedicated account manager? If you want to learn more about becoming a Zoho advisor, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Zoho. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash Z-O-H-O. So I got to get back to the chat because this conversation between the three of us has stimulated some discussion. D. Hall says, with an audit that fails, the only accountability would be from stakeholders and the stakeholders have to show that damages occurred. A company making profits has no damages until collapse. And he also said, auditors are in a position of low risk. Audit managers manage risk, not assurance of materiality. Can't, I can't disagree with that. So... What I guess what that means is like when when I'm managing risk, it's it's like I'm managing the risk that there is a material misstatement. My goal as an audit manager, like this is not what it's supposed to be according to our ethics, but my goal is to give them a, a clean opinion. Right. Right. I, I would I would just say on the managing risk, I don't think the auditing profession does a great job managing risk because they're using hourly billing to price these big audits. And I've talked to actuaries about this who price risk for a living, and they say there is no model in actuarial science to price risk by the hour because the time that you spend auditing a company has no direct correlation to the risk right but you're, that you're taking but your goal see this but this is where the the whole business model has created this perverse system because your goal as an audit partner is to issue a clean opinion to not have any material misstatements and so you use the cheapest least experienced people you can because they are the least likely to find anything Right, that's a, that's a cynical view, but yeah, I think there's some truth to that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. Sure. It's not like anyone, you know, decided at one point like that's what I'm going to do. It just sort of happened, right? Right. It's, right. it's systemic. It's the system. Yeah. You, you, no, nobody uh, planned that. Your bonus is if you're in an audit is not based on like all the cool stuff you find that's illegal or needs to be caught. Your bonus is probably based on the number of hours you build for or push Absolutely. Through. Yeah. And your realization. Oh, I bet if you find fraud, if you actually find like real fraud, it's a huge inconvenience to the audit engagement team because now they oh, got to go do a whole lot more work, right? <laughs> what, you know, the guys on All My Fraud it. talk about the percentages of how fraud is uncovered. Yeah. And what is it like 2% that, are, that come from the auditors? More come from the internal auditors if the company yep. has, has them. Yeah, it's only a few percent of frauds are detected by the external auditors. And this is another huge misunderstanding the public has with audit, which is if I think if you go ask somebody on the street, is a is an audit supposed to detect fraud? They would say yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And this is our fault as a profession. But see, we don't want to engage in this discussion. We want to have all these picky cane rules about, oh, well, you know, if your brother-in-law from your third marriage, twice removed cousin owns a share of Disney and your firm audits disney does that impair your independence i mean none of that matters yeah we get caught up on all these little independence rules but the big problem is you can't be paid to be independent yeah well i i think this fundamentally is why like the the profession is having trouble recruiting people because i think whether or not they can express it young people want to have a meaningful job and audit which is one of the key ways that they enter our profession is not meaningful as a whole. You know, when you talk about the problems with attracting talent and and retaining them and all of that, it's like, you know, stars don't work for idiots. <laughs> if your business model sucks and I'm a star knowledge worker, I'm not, why would I work for you? EY or KPMG, why wouldn't I go work for Google or Apple where I could make a dent in the world? Yep. Christopher in the chat says, uh, the kid who asks if there's homework after the teacher never brought up homework I think he's referring to an auditor who actually, you know, does their job. The, the, the they get punished. Finds fraud. Yeah, the daughter who finds yeah, fraud is yeah, like that kid, yeah, right? Yeah. Is there going to be homework? Yeah. We all want to go home. Don't find anything. 
right? you know, this is tangential issue, but I think this is interesting too. And I know you guys have talked about ESG, but I think this is one of the reasons the profession is so excited about ESG because they see it as something more relevant than the audit. But I'll just, you, and I'm a big, big, big critic of ESG. I mean, you won't find somebody who's more opposed to this than I am. I'll just <laughs> give you one. myself <laughs> right there. I'll, I'll just give you one data point. <laughs> okay. FTX, according to Morningstar, which is one of the ESG rating agencies, FTX had a higher governance score in their ESG report than did ExxonMobil. And from what I understand, FTX didn't have a board of directors, but somehow their ESG score is higher than ExxonMobil's. Now, if somebody, if, if an ESG proponent out there can explain that to me, then I'm all ears. Otherwise, this is all BS. Uh, well, it's, I guess the- I the, can't argue it. I mean, I, yeah, we're, we're with you on that, Ron. It's like, we've looked into ESG a little bit on this show. And for those listening who aren't, you know, familiar with the the acronym, it's you know what environmental, social, and governance uh, is the is the term. And to me, I think like the biggest problem I have is it just seems like this mishmash of different things that aren't oh, related. They're all contradict e, the know. E and the S and the G all contradict. Let's give you one one other data point on this. If you look at the credit rating agencies that you know grade companies and corporate debt and all of that, they have like a ninety five percent correlation between. So you know. One of them's given a company A plus rating, then there's a 95% chance the others will. ESG's different rating, and there's lots of them. They have a 54% correlation, which means there's no, I, I defy anybody to give me a definition of ESG, actually define it, and then go, go, go more granular and define the E and the S and the G. Good luck with that. You'll never yeah. find a definition. You'll only find all these, you know, highfalutin phrases, but then there's no metrics for it. There's no meaningful metrics. It's all subjective. We brought this up on the show, and the AICPA conveniently has a company in their CPA.com cohort, you know, these companies they invest in, they nurture or whatever, that calculates all this. And, like, that was the answer. Like, of course I heard they can that. We have a company that does this. I'm like, okay. And you'll hear, oh, but the metrics are getting better. Really? Is that why FTX has a higher score? The Exxon is that why the Chinese chemical company or the Chinese oil company, state oil company, has a higher ESG score than Exxon? Is that why the Russian bank? There's a bank in Russia that has a higher ESG score than J.P. Morgan. How does any of this pass the sniff test? Yeah. This is this is it's, just nonsense on stilts. It's arbitrary and it's marketing, right? It's like everybody wants that ESG. They want to say that we're doing good for the world, right? Because that's what the people want, but in but, the end, the firm selling these scores, it doesn't mean anything. Accenture just issued a report. This was in the recent, a couple a couple weeks ago in The Economist. Accenture issued a report. 93% of the companies that say they are going to go net zero by 2050, 93% of them are not even close to getting there. There's no, they're just mouthing this stuff because just like SBF, he knew if he mouthed this stuff, then he, he would make friends because it sounds good. I'm trying to save the world. So I want to bring things full circle, right? Uh, and I think I have a way to do that because it seems to me all this obsession with ESG is because the thought leaders in our profession know that there's all these like fundamental issues with accounting standards and auditing, and they don't actually want to deal with that. Nobody wants to address the real problems facing the profession, which we've just spent 40 minutes talking about. So I won't rehash that. So <laughs> we say, let's go do ESG, right? New big opportunity. We can change the world. We can, auditors can, I don't know, like like make the world a better place. Save the planet. Save the Distraction. planet. Distraction. Yeah, right. Yep. But meanwhile, our accounting standards don't work in a subscription economy. And they still don't, even though we've had subscription-based businesses growing and, and becoming some of the most valuable companies on the planet over the last few decades, they still don't properly account for those kind of businesses. And I think, I, for me, the, the book that made me realize that first was, you know, or gave me the inkling of that was Teen Swo's Subscribed, Ron, which mm -hmm. you have spoken about, and that's how I found out about that. And, you know, he, he lays out this concept of this subscription economy income statement. And really, when you look at, when you dig into Gap and you look at how it handles subscription businesses and how it handles 
I don't know. And what it does now, it just doesn't work. Like a subscription-based business is punished for using Gap accounting because Gap is all about uh, making a product. You capitalize all the costs, right? You accrue all the costs of creating that product. You know, that's inventory. And then you take it to market and you sell it. And the difference between your cost and your you know, sale price is your margin. Right. And there's matching. So you're trying to match, you know, with the cost, with the period and all of that. And, and fundamentally, if you, if it's actually really, accounting is actually really simple when you think about it. It's all just about matching those expenses that happened a while back with the income we're receiving now and being able to see how did I do? How, what is my margin on that product? And that worked great in the industrial economy because that's how businesses worked. You made something in a factory, you took it to market and you sold it. And calculating that margin allowed investors to see which companies are effectively managed, right? Which right. ones are efficient and which ones aren't. But now in a subscription economy- That's out the window. It's flipped. Yep. We go get the customer first and then we deliver the product or service. Yep. And our accounting doesn't know how to deal with that. And it mismatches the income and the expense. You'll appreciate this. I'll say this really quick. I met the bookkeeper who was the bookkeeper for MD Squared when they opened. Now, MD Squared, by the way, I don't think I said this, the concierge doctor that does limits 50 families to each doc. They started in 1996. They're the largest concierge doctor practice across the country. So they're, they've been around for 26 years. Shows you how far behind the curve we are. But she was their bookkeeper. I, I met her at Scaling New Heights. She came up to me and Ed was sitting there having a drink. And she said, she goes, I'm so glad you talked about MD Squared. She goes, I couldn't get my head around it. She'd go to the controller, CFO, with a check for whatever the monthly subscription amount, two grand or what. She goes, where do I code this? What did we do for this guy? She wanted to match it to something. And the CFO looked at her and goes, we did whatever, whatever he required. We don't track that. He's paying for access to us when he needs us. You just can't do that with Gap. You have to match and you have, you know, and there is none of that. Well, you can, you can match though. I think there's a way and Teenswell kind of lays that out in broad strokes and subscribed and, and you talk about it in your book that you can match up the recurring revenue with the recurring expenses and you can get what, a recurring profit, a recurring yes, gross margin. Yes, that's a category. Yeah. That's a categorization, not not necessarily the matching principle. But yes, I get, yes, right. absolutely, well, that's true. Well, and that, if you think about it, that's what I as an investor care about when I'm looking at a subscription-based business is I want to know, okay, what is your MRR, your monthly recurring revenue, or what is your annual recurring revenue? And then I want to know, what are your recurring costs to deliver that product or service to those customers without them churning? Right. Yep. Like to, to keep them happy. What does it cost you? And then, you know, what's the difference? That's yep. the margin. That's the recurring margin. And that is how investors think when they invest in subscription businesses. They want to know, is that a big margin or is that a small one? Because that determines the valuation. You know, can I increase that margin? The same way in a factory, you would, you know, increase efficiency to reduce costs. Right. The, yeah. a, an investor can look at a subscription business and say, oh, yeah, we're we we have um, too much capacity. We're going to reduce our capacity a little bit, and now we're going to have bigger margin. Right? We're going to still be able to service the customers kind of idea. Right. I mean, uh, it, and it gives the, the Teens O's subscription income statement gives the uh, investor enough to do customer yeah. lifetime value modeling as well. But as Teen takes it a step further, he says, if I see net income on a subscription-based business income statement, he said, I kind of score them negatively. I want them to plow back their net income into customer acquisition. He says, as long as the bucket's not leaking, then we're growing CLV, customer lifetime value. It's just a different mindset because it's a different profit formula. Well, yeah, exactly. And this is where Gap messes up and doesn't provide useful information to investors because like you said, a subscription business that is properly managed has little or no, or even negative net income on purpose. Yep. They don't want- By design. By design, you want to take all of your cash and you reinvest it in adding more customers because those customers are an asset. Your customers are an asset in a subscription business. And that is completely incomprehensible to most accountants, to current accounting theory. The idea that yeah. a customer could be an asset on your balance sheet. But I think we actually might need to consider 
How do we do that? Because yeah. investors do it. That's what lifetime value is. It's a way to measure the value of a customer. And yep. you could actually put them on the balance sheet. You could calculate your lifetime value. You could multiply that by the number of customers and you could put the customers on the balance sheet. Yeah, I mean, this is why Jeff Bezos, um, not, not that Amazon's a all subscription, it's not, it still sells a bunch of SKUs, but this is why Jeff Bezos' metric that he was fanatical about was free cash flow. He says, I don't give a crap about margin. I can't pay the light bill with margin. I have to, I have to work off free cash flow. Yeah. And subscription makes it easier to do that as well. Well, and if because it's predictable, if if Bezos looked at uh, traditional accounting reports like cost accounting, if he used cost accounting in Amazon, he never would have done Amazon Prime, yeah. because Amazon actually loses money on most orders uh, under ten dollars because it costs yeah. them t theoretically, according to cost accounting, it costs them more to deliver a you know five dollar pack of toothbrushes than they make from that order. But Bezos understood that he's building up subscribers to Amazon Prime. So it doesn't matter that he's like theoretically losing money per product on all of these little items because he makes it up through the whole customer relationship that people are willing to spend thousands of dollars per year as Amazon Prime members to have everything delivered in two days, which they wouldn't do if two-day delivery didn't exist. Plus they spend four times more than a non-Prime customer with Amazon. Yeah, and an accountant would have looked at this and said, no, you can't do it Prime, we're going to lose money, right? Well, it, it cost accountants would have told Netflix when they sent out that uh, email to people that said, hey, you guys, you haven't signed into Netflix in the last 12 months. We really don't like to see our customers pay for things that they're not utilizing and valuing, so we're going to cancel your subscription unless you sign in and reconfirm. No cost accountant would advise them to do it. Th these are the best customers. They pay every <laughs> month and they don't use your product. But that's that's not the mindset you can have. You want your customers, the concierge doctors have to educate their customers to come in more, not just when you're sick. Yeah. We want to see you when you're healthy because we want to keep you that way. Can you imagine that? Like an accounting firm encouraging their clients to call them more? I, I know. We, we, we put up this barrier of this tech stack between us and our customers and that's what really worries me because this is ultimately a relationship businesses yeah. business and you can't do that just through your process, your workflow processes. By definition, relationships are inefficient. By definition. So, uh, hey, April is in the chat and said, the journal entry under accrual basis for monthly subscription model is debit, cash, credit, unearned revenue. At the end of every month, you book debit, unearned revenue, and credit sales revenue. Yes, that's true. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, here's my example using debits and credits. So um, when I go out and I spend money on marketing to acquire a customer, where does that normally appear in a gap financial statement? David, let's say I spent $100 and I got a customer for Earmark. I'm not the accountant. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. It, it shows up as a debit to marketing expense. Yeah. Yeah. Credit cash, debit marketing. But according to my theory of, of the subscription model, that customer that I acquired is worth, let's say uh, $500, because they're gonna pay me $100 every year for five years. And I know this based on my turn rate. I can calculate this number reliably. Yeah. It's certainly a better estimate than many accounting estimates we make. So let's just assume that's true. I can, it's worth $500. So really what happened economically during that month is I spent $100 and I gained a $500 asset. Annuity. It's an annuity, right? And it's gonna, I'm gonna get $100 this year, I'm going to get $100 next year for five years on average. So Gap Financials, all I show is I'll, I'll actually show if they pay me $100 a year. In that year, I show zero profit, right? But I've got 400 more coming. And that's where Gap Financials don't show any of that, right? Right. I would be better off on a Gap basis just selling them the $500 thing up front. And then I show a $400 profit or something like that. And this, this right, is where right. Amazon, like why Amazon looks so unprofitable for so long. Yep. It's were, why Adobe, when they made the switch to cloud-based and subscription, the investors freaked out. But now that they understand the model, you know, it's a good thing the market's smarter than the accounting profession. Yeah. So I, I think there's a way to figure out how to actually like do accounting for that. I mean, we just have to look at how the investors do it in their spreadsheets. But I think we could actually you know, have a methodology for 
subscription-based businesses to create P&Ls and balance sheets that actually make sense. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll you, hold my breath for FASB to come up with something. Well, but and that's the problem is they dick around the creating lease accounting standards, that, like the lease yeah, accounting that standard. Are incomprehensible. It's the least. The lease accounting standard is the least useful accounting standard ever created. <laughs> I haven't heard anyone say that it's useful. Investors don't care. Accountants don't care. Managers don't care. Like, why did they create this thing? It's amazing. Yeah. Gives them something to do. If anyone disagrees and thinks that the lease accounting standard is helpful or useful, please, you can write to me. We're cloud accounting podcast at earmarkcpe.com. Uh, and uh, Dave, as David says, write to Blake. Don't send your complaints to Blake. <laughs> Don't have any yes, yes, yeah. I'm not the accountant. Send your complaints to Blake. Sorry, David, for monopolizing this conversation with accounting nerd theory. I had to because Ron's here. Is there anything you want to add, David, to the to this episode before uh, I close things out? I, th- I think I'd love, I know we have a little clip. I'd love to play a clip from a new podcast called Booksite. Oh, yeah. Let me pull um, that up. Taylor Arndt, she is a blind bookkeeper. This is like a teaser clip of her podcast in a way. Because what she did is she captured in a podcast, which is just so genius, and I want everybody to go download and listen to it, how she uses her computer. And it works because it's a podcast and not a it's all audio. You you have no visuals, mm-hmm. right? It's not a YouTube video. And the way she does it is so amazing. And so this is almost like a, a teaser clip on like, yes, how she does bookkeeping, right? So this and, is the experience of I'm blind, I'm doing bookkeeping with audio. Okay. Let's listen. Bookkeeping if I'm blind. That's a very valid question. And I'm glad you asked. The short answer is I use a screen reader. I don't use a mouse. I use the computer just by keyboard commands alone. So let me go ahead and demonstrate. As a blind person, I am so used to hearing speech that my screen reader reads at a very, very fast speed. All right. So you hear my screen. What was that? You hear a very fast voice, I'm sure. It's pretty fast and it is probably a little bit robotic to you, I'm sure. So let me go ahead and show you guys how fast it talks. You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, that is way, way, way too fast. And I'm sure it is. That's incredible, David. That is. So, I, I know we like like sometimes it feels like our industry is like hopeless for lack of better terms. But there's always like great stories. Like somebody who's new to bookkeeping, she just embraced it. She jumped in, uh, switched her career from being a web developer to bookkeeping. And so there's people discovering our industry and getting excited about it. And mm-hmm. even with the challenges of like, like she's blind and she's doing she's doing QuickBooks support or QuickBooks work and I think FreshBooks work and she's doing real bookkeeping work. That's amazing. amazing. Awesome. That's awesome. And I assume that if she has a Kindle, I think Kindle has the ability to read mm. the uh, book to you. So yeah. you can also, uh, whether you're sighted or not, read Time's Up, the <laughs> subscription model for professional firms. Ron, do you have a place that you uh, prefer that people purchase this book if they want to get one? Amazon is good because it's available on hardcover and also on Kindle. Yep. And uh, if people want to learn more and possibly join a community, they can go to the soul of enterprise.com slash times up. And we're doing, we're doing Q and a sessions, me and Paul Dunn and Ed, and we're going to have other events and other benefits as well. So people can check it out there. Awesome. And if people want to follow you online, what's your favorite spot? Uh, Twitter at Ronald Baker, LinkedIn. I'm one of the influencers, so they can get me there. They can also just email me, ron at verisage.com. I'm happy to talk with people or uh, help them out if they have questions or whatever. So awesome. I'm pretty accessible. Thanks for joining and, and us today, the book's today, about, Ron. what, 49 bucks a month? It, I have to pay you 49 <laughs> bucks a month. <laughs> no, it's a one-time hit, 40 bucks. I've got a lousy <laughs> agent, you know. He's selling SKUs, not, uh, not subscriptions. That's so. amazing. Uh, well, David, if people want to touch base with you online, where can they do I'm that? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, and subscribe to Cloud Accounting Podcast on YouTube. Just search Cloud Accounting Podcast, hit the subscribe button. You'll get notified when we go live, and you can find all sorts of fun stuff like our uh, videos that we recorded at QuickBooks Connect, touring around the QuickBooks booth, learning what's new. If you couldn't make it or you didn't get a chance to go by the booth, now you can go with us and you can see us as well, potentially, too. 
yeah, that's it for me this week. I hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas holiday and happy Hanukkah and a happy new year. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. Great to see Appreciate you. it. Thank you. You too. Time for the classifieds. Check out Hector Garcia's new app called Write Tool for QuickBooks Online. Instantly increase your productivity with keyboard shortcuts and more. It will save you seconds. The app is free at the moment in public beta. Check them out at writetool.app. That is writetool.app. R-I-G-H-T-T-O-O-L dot app. I don't care where you live in the United States. If you're a CPA, you have to take ethics continuing education. And I don't care who you are and where you live. You hate taking ethics continuing education. That's why me, Greg Kite, and my buddy, Adam Browd, we created a podcast called Drunk Ethics, where we unfold and uh, expose all of the inner secrets of not just ethics, but how to become more ethical and to promote ethical behavior at your workplace. And we do that while we are getting progressively more faced during the course of each episode. In each episode, we take seven shots every seven minutes. And so at the beginning, we are scholarly. And by the end, we are drunk yet still scholarly. If you're interested in this podcast, which I know you are, anyone can listen to the podcast for free. It's out there. You can find it. But if you want CPE credit for it, NASBA certified CPE credit, it is a premium course on Earmark. So if you're already a subscriber to Earmark, it's going to be more than that. But listen, it's worth it because of two reasons. First off, you know your company. You know your firm's going to pay for it and not you. And second of all, it's worth it, damn it. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.